Greetings, explorers. This is Mike Wong, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Pack your bags, because today we're taking a trip to Namibia with Cecilia Sanders, a geobiologist who studies rocks and fossils that are hundreds of millions of years old. You may remember Cecilia from previous episodes of Strange New Worlds, especially if you go dig up episodes 8 and 9, where she taught us about the concept of biosignatures. Since that recording, Cecilia has actually gone out into the field to seek out signs of life, ancient life, from a time in Earth's history much unlike our own. Strange beings on a strange world not too far from home. Let's see what's out there, hidden in the rocks. So I want to welcome back to the show Elise Cuts. Hey there. And Cecilia Sanders. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to bring you a very special episode in which we talk to Cecilia about the past couple months of her life, which were spent mm-hmm. not here at Caltech, not even in the United States, not in North America, but all the way in Namibia. Uh, but before we get to that and all the in- adventures that that entails, we need to talk about some of the recent Star Trek news that Cecilia missed while she was out of the country. There is a lot of it. And we last spoke to Cecilia at the end of season one of Star Trek Discovery. And since then, there have been some big revelations. First of all, we had a trailer drop for season two. And I was wondering if I could just get some feedback from you guys about what you thought about this trailer. Oh, I'm so hypey. It, it looks so good. And when Pike came on and he said he was taking control, I'm just like, oh, really? This is the captain that we get? I'm so excited. because. The whole time I was wondering, well, who are they going to have be the captain for season two? And we get Pike, which is, I think, an awesome way to take a character who had, we were told, so many awesome stories, but we never really got to see them in the other series. Now we get to have that tie-in to something we're familiar with, but still the potential for a lot of new adventures. And, of course, very excited to have the possibility of seeing Spock and everybody looks great and then Tilly says that's the power of math and I got really excited and it's it's great I'm so pumped yeah so y'all just showed me the trailer literally 45 seconds ago um so I'm still processing but uh I have to say I'm like not super excited about having Pike as captain you know like one of the whole exciting things about Discovery is like not well, like, or having any different season, different series of Star Trek is the new faces, like, the new crew and everything, and so as fun as it is to have, like, you know, throwback and characters that are really important to the lore and the history of Star Trek and everything, I was kind of hoping that, well, if we can't have Michelle Yeoh back, which I'm slowly accepting is just going to be how it is, I think it would have been cool to have someone that wasn't, you know, another chiseled jaw white dude. And, uh, or even just bring someone up from the crew. I enjoyed the brief stint we got with Tilly as captain. I, like, think that Saru would make a cool and interesting captain because we've not had an alien Starfleet captain in the main cast yet. So I think that that'd be really neat. Alien as in non-human. It's very anthropocentric of me. (laughs) Um, But besides that, which, you know, like, I get it. We, like 
we have to really cater to the new fans as well as the old fans as well and tie like the stories together and stuff literally everything else about that trailer just has me giddy like it looks like it's going to be exactly the right mix of ridiculous silly hijinks and adventure and actually like serious morality play like plots which star trek is really famous for and I don't know, it'll be really nice to see the friendships among the crew like develop a little bit more, and presumably to get to know the bridge team a little bit more. They got a lot of FaceTime in the trailer, so I hope that means that we get to see them interact a bit. Yeah, that moment when she was like, trust us, you got us girls, right? And up on the ship, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we, we got this, we got this. Yeah, I was so excited because there are all yeah. these personalities that we didn't really get to understand too well that mm-hmm. seem like they have so much potential too, so that that's super exciting as well. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. That's great. I don't know what red bursts are, but like <laughs> they said it like I should know what it means, so maybe... Hopefully it makes more sense than red matter. Yeah, just, you know, it's matter, but it's red, I don't know. It like <laughs> Well, speaking yeah. of bringing on old Star Trek characters into the Discovery world, we also had a big news drop that Mr. Spock has been recast. We have Ethan Peck playing Spock in the Discovery rendition of Star Trek. Now, I've never heard of Ethan Peck before. Have either of you? No, never heard of him. But he looks, from the couple of pictures that I've seen from like the press release, he looks kind of the part. He looks real. Like, the eyebrows yeah. are spot on. Yeah. That's the most important part, right? <laughs> the eyebrows, you're going to do the whole Spock eyebrow thing. Looks mm-hmm. amazing. <laughs> I was kind of hoping for Zachary Quinto to come on and reprise his role as Mr. Spock. I wasn't really expecting that to happen, and I'm sort of glad it didn't. It's cool to see Discovery giving new actors a chance to break into the fandom. And Zach Quinto's 41 now, and uh, this is supposed to be a younger Spock, and I know Vulcan lifetimes are a bit different, and that when we saw Spock in the original series with Pike, that he was still played by Leonard Nimoy, but it makes sense I guess intuitively in my mind to see somebody who looks younger or different because this is a different part of Spock's life. So I wasn't really upset. Yeah, I think in the Star Trek timeline, Spock around this era is supposed to be in his mid or maybe late 20s. So I guess bringing on a 41-year-old actor might not be the correct choice. But you know who's in his mid or late 20s? I am, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, Sulu. Yeah, yeah, why where's, not? Where's Sulu right now? Like, well, he's got to be... Fencing practice. Oh, bless him. <laughs> so actually, yeah, if... yeah, Cecilia, you said previously that you're not so sure about bringing in all of these old characters because you want to continue this fresh look and fresh adventures and fresh faces on Star Trek. But if there were an old character of your choosing that you wanted to appear on Star Trek Discovery, who would that be? And I've claimed Sulu already because I want to play that role. But <laughs> Well, to make sense with Discovery, it would have to be somebody from the original series. So honestly, I want to see... I mean, maybe it's just like female representation or something. I want to see what Uhura is up to because I feel like we don't know anything about her background at all. Like, And she's supposed to come from like United Africa or something. What's going on there? I don't know. She just seems... Sulu would, would probably be my other choice, or Chekhov. Sort of the, the bridge crew, I guess. The, the bridge crew of the original series that we don't know as much about. It's like, we know Kirk came from Iowa, and we know Bones came from somewhere in the U.S. where he became sad and bitter. But I think Uhura would be cool, and I think Sulu would be cool. I don't know to what extent they're planning on merging the 
storylines introduced in the movie with the storylines in Discovery, but in the movies, Spock and Yohara are romantically involved, which surprised and delighted me. Um, so I think it wouldn't be too far afield to like have Spock talk about his long, long-distance girlfriend or whatever and have her like somehow mysteriously show up or whatever. Because I think in the trailer they say that Spock is on leave or something, so potentially Yuhara could be on leave too, and then they show up, and then hijinks ensue with, like, big sister and, like, little brother's new girlfriend, (laughs) and it's just, you know, I think it could be real cute and interesting, and Yuhara can sort of be our window into what's happening on Earth. Yeah, we don't know much about what's going on on Earth at all. Yeah, like, main cast, as far as we know, like, you know, none of them grew up there Mm -hmm. or anything, so Yuhara, in theory comes from our home planet, you know, and she could potentially be our window into this world. Yeah, like, I feel like everything I know about Yohara's backstory is also just completely muddled with fan fiction and fan accounts, so it'd be kind of neat to, like, see them dig up anything that was, like, mentioned in passing in the original series. Yeah, also she has this, I think she sort of goes through the Starfleet steps in a more traditional manner than Mm -hmm. a lot of the people that we encounter who are prodigies beyond prodigies, who skip all the grades and get commands way before they should and everything. It'd be nice to sort of see what it's what it's really like to do it just as a like a student, as somebody who's excelling in a way that's not so, like overhuman, not I guess. necessarily breaking. She seems like she could be a more relatable person in a lot of yeah. ways, and and give us insight into what United Earth looks like outside of the United States. Maybe she and Tilly could be buddies. Could be buddies. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they could be roommates. <laughs> well, another redheaded roommate. <laughs> the uh, the the big news at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention was that Alex Kurtzman came out and declared that they are expanding the Star Trek universe on television, and there have been rumors rumbling about a Starfleet Academy series, just like you guys were talking about. Wouldn't that be cool to see? I'd love that. An animated series for Star Trek and uh, bring oh yeah bring artists back in to. Show us what all sorts of crazy things could look like in the Star Trek wow, universe. They just, they just went up on stage and dropped this? Um, so Alex Kurtzman came out on stage to, to give a, a very big announcement. And uh, it had been established previously that all of these ideas were rumors for a new Star Trek series. And mm-hmm. there are probably many of them in development. But there was one that was announced. And to do that announcement, he brought out Sir Patrick Stewart who gave a beautiful soliloquy about his time playing Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek The Next Generation for seven seasons and then four subsequent movies, and how he had put that behind him and moved on from the role of Jean-Luc Picard for the betterment of his career, getting to play different roles um, in, in different arenas of fiction. And then he announced that he was coming back as Jean-Luc Picard because the world right now needed a little bit more TNG. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to get your reactions to Jean-Luc is back. It's like getting to go visit my grandpa after a bunch of years. I'm so excited. And I think that they announced that it was going to be sort of a different kind of series too, that they were doing something unique with him. 
So if he's a main character, I doubt it's going to be an action series, which could be really exciting because we've seen Star Trek as this sort of action-adventure, swashbuckling, sort of pseudo-Western expansion kind of idea in, in a lot of ways. It's like cowboys in, in a lot of the storylines where it's like, oh, we're going to go over the next horizon and see something nobody from our group of people has ever seen before. But if they're taking sort of a person like Patrick Stewart, who's later in his career, and using him as the main character or the focal point around everything that's happening, I don't know, it seems like there could be a story in the Star Trek universe that isn't about these like swashbucklers and phaser-wielding badasses going around the universe, seeing things that other people have never seen. It could be a story about diplomats or scientists or archaeologists or artists or anything and I think that would be super cool I'm hoping it's something different maybe like a murder mystery series who knows I don't know I'm really excited yeah Jean-Luc is for many reasons my favorite of all of the captains that we've had and he ran his ship so differently you know and it's not like every other captain every other series was all about like phasers and pirate adventures and stuff like that like certainly there were plenty of you know thoughtful ideas and nuance and stuff like that but it very much seemed like the leadership you know of the of the ships was all about either wartime or responding to situations of incredible peril and things like that and so i I like the idea of kind of a uh i don't know like jean-luc picard reminds me a little bit of hercule perot or like someone like that who sits and thinks and doesn't have his throne in the middle of the room, but like a little circle of close counselors or whatever who he can consult about different things. And I just think, like, I don't know if it's going to be the sort of series where he's like captaining somewhere, you know, but like I feel like they have the chance to do what Star Trek does best, which is provide measured, thoughtful social commentary, you know, from a person who can actually, a character who can reasonably provide measured thoughtful social commentary because he's not a Kirk, you know? So I I think that sounds absolutely incredible. And honestly, it's just really touching to hear Patrick Stewart, who, who at the time was already a great actor, but who has gone on to do some really incredible roles, this classically trained Shakespearean whatever, like, you know, to hear him say, like, this is one of the best things I ever did, and I'm going to do it again because it's more important than just, like, the art or the story or whatever it's like the power of that art and story to like make people think about things differently and I just think you know if he feels that way and is coming back to the role because of those feelings then it's just going to be something really special yeah it's so touching just that he thought that the world needs more TNG the world needs more next generation not just Star Trek but that kind of thoughtful best that Star Trek can be kind of Star Trek you guys are going to make me cry. <laughs> you cry when we announced it? I certainly did. Um, so, yeah, we're all very much looking forward to whatever is on the horizon, a brand new Star Trek series of a much different flavor. Cecilia, maybe you're a little bit sick of swashbuckling adventuring because that's exactly what you did for the past few months. So let's Were talk about that. <laughs> I, I never washed any buckles. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you went to Namibia to do field work. And I just want to get a few basics down first um, to lay the groundwork and uh, get a good picture of what's going on. So Namibia, where is Namibia? So Namibia is in southern Africa. Um, It shares a border with Botswana and shares a border with South Africa, shares a border with Angola. It is 
an incredibly huge country for the number of people it actually has in it. Most of the people are all clustered up um, on the border or on the coast. Uh, there's a handful of major cities that aren't all that much larger than Pasadena. And then the rest of the country is mostly scattered sort of farm and village kind of communities. I think I think the population density of the whole country is something like a person per square mile or something like that. So definitely very big and very wild in a lot of ways. Certainly when you go out in the desert in Southern California, you get a similar sense just being able to look for a million miles or something and, you know, not see signs of human civilization in the sense of like large developments and stuff like that like you know it's just just shrubs shrubs and dirt and how long were you there for i think a total of 63 days possibly 64 so some of those were spent sort of in limbo in hotels waiting for sample permits to come through the Ministry of Mines and things like that, but uh, most of it was camping out in the Namib-Naukliff National Park. And who went on this trip with you? Uh, So the first couple weeks, I suppose, yeah, the first 10 or 11 days or so, there was a big group of us. So, you know, in movies, there's always the montage or whatever. It's like, oh, we're going to get the team together and go on this big adventure. And it's like, that's actually how field geology works, which is pretty great. Some professors get a grant and they reach out to their other professor friends and they're like, who do you have who's interested in this particular topic or has this particular skill set? Um, and then they cobble together a team of scientists and professionals from the Namibian Geological Survey and people with mining company experience and graduate students like myself and visiting professors from other universities who are interested in starting up collaborations in the future. They put together this team. There's a big exciting montage. Everyone's got a theme song. And then, yeah, and then we all just show up in Windhoek, uh, Windhoek, I can't say it right, um, at the same time and load up some trucks and then make our way into the desert. So the first couple weeks we had this large, super interesting, diverse crew of people and then they all left me behind with my colleague Dustin Morris, who's another graduate student at Caltech with us. And then it was then it was two. Uh, so we went from some, you know, 14, 15 people down to just two people alone in the wilderness you know, not so alone you know within 50 kilometers of a small town with a gas station you know but besides that pretty much just us in our tents and the baboons so not too many humans for about two months of my life so in star trek people often go on away missions for scientific and research purposes to investigate a strange new world and understand the geology, the physics, the biology, the chemistry of that world. So Cecilia, what was the scientific purpose of your expedition to Namibia? Yeah, so Namibia is one of the few special places in the world that has rocks from a period of Earth history that we call the Cryogenian or the Snowball Earth when the entire Earth, from the poles down to the equator, was covered with an ice shell. It's mostly widely agreed that there's at least uh, a couple of moments in Earth history where you just cover everything with glaciers. And then almost as quickly as it happens, even quicker in fact, those glaciers melt and recede because you've covered up all the land masses and really the only climate change that's happening to the planet is you're just pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere from 
volcanoes and seeps and things like that. So you build up all of this carbon dioxide, you get a runaway greenhouse going, and suddenly you melt all of these glaciers. And so suddenly you've had an ocean that's been covered by ice and not in direct communication with the atmosphere for some million years or more, and you have a biosphere that's been disconnected from the atmosphere for however many millions of years, and you're starting the weathering cycle of the continents again, all of this crazy stuff starts happening again very quickly and all at the same time, and you get kind of, you know, it is a, it is a strange new world. <laughs> That's the title of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's, it's really important for people who uh, are listening to this podcast who aren't used to thinking about deep time and geology that Earth has gone through so many different faces, and it hasn't always been the same planet that it is today. And indeed, there have been some really extreme climate excursions. We are inducing human-made climate change right now, but Earth has swung back and forth between different climates uh, for for the entirety of its four and a half billion years of existence. And Elise, you're very interested in the types of biospheres that might have existed on Earth when it was much older. And so what Cecilia has been talking about actually reminds me not of Earth, but of other planetary bodies in our solar system in which there is ice covering an ocean. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, Europa, Enceladus. It's, <laughs> their ice-covered oceans are more common than oceans not covered in ice in our solar system. There are more bodies than I can name off the top of my head in the solar system that have ice-covered oceans, but they're all pretty different than what Cecilia is describing because Earth can have an ocean that isn't covered by ice, and the big difference from what you're saying is that it goes from being in contact with the atmosphere, being able to exchange things like oxygen, nitrogen with the atmosphere, to suddenly being completely cut off from that, whereas these worlds have always been cut off from usually the non-existent atmosphere that they have. Um, Europa has a very non-existent sort of very sparse atmosphere these bodies are too small to hold on to to big ones and the ice shell is so so thick thicker i think than anybody Mm -hmm. has proposed the ice shell on the earth ever being and it's and they're ancient it's more like thinking about there being a crust and a mantle for those worlds that's just based on ice instead of rock than it is to think about an ocean in the way that the earth has an ocean So, Cecilia, you said that the reason why you were going to Namibia is because there were rocks there that were as old as this, what was the word you used, cryo... Cryogenian. Cryogenian Cryogenian, time period. And so, how were those rocks emplaced there, and what can you learn about the snowball earth from looking at those rocks? And how old are they? So, are we talking before animals, after animals? So, we're talking before animals going into the appearance of the first animals in the Ediacaran. So, the oldest rocks that we were interested in were on the order of 630 million years old, going up to around 530 million years old. So... You know, honestly, quite a huge chunk of the entire history of the Earth. And uh, certainly one of the most interesting from the perspective of evolutionary biology and climate research. So, yeah, the question of how these rocks got in place is, you know, is not a simple one. It's something that many people have spent, you know, their entire careers figuring out and then, you know, passed the torch on to their graduate students, of which I am one. 
But basically, the idea is after your snowball event, you have a planet that's very warm and you have an ocean that's super saturated in carbonate. So for those not familiar, carbonate can refer to a lot of things. You're probably used to seeing it in your cabinet as sodium bicarbonate that you add to your baked goods, a raising agent sometimes. But really all it just means is minerals made partially of the ion CO3, carbonate. So there's a lot of carbonate in the oceans today, dissolved, but in the past, the idea is there was a lot more of it before the onset of shell-forming organisms. So almost all the shells that you see at the beach when you go for a walk there are going to be made of carbonate that these organisms have gathered and built homes for themselves with. But back before that, you basically just had carbonate raining out of the water column, out of the ocean, um, and settling on the ocean floor and building up tens of meters, hundreds of meters, kilometers of just really boring looking gray and white, finely laminated rock everywhere in the world's oceans. So you have these huge blocks of carbonate rock that sit right on top of rock units that are glacial in origin. And so that's sort of the, the hallmark of a snowball earth event is finding these glaciogenic deposits, you know, so big rocks dropped by glaciers into soft sediments that used to be near the equator, now capped with many, many, many meters of relatively boring looking carbonate rock. And then gradually you get a return to what geologists call siliciclastic, so getting rock weathering off of the continents and back into the oceans rather than just having these uh, these chemically derived sediments sifting down from the water column. So in Namibia in particular you see this really interesting sequence. You see glacial rocks, glacial rocks, glacial rocks, and then you see this huge carbonate sequence and then you start seeing this return to siliciclastics and within that carbonate sequence you see evidence of a changing biosphere. You start to see what are essentially microbial fossils. So before we had animals, we certainly had life. And so you have all of these weird, interesting little crinkly textures and huge uh, reefs built up by nothing more than what would look to us today, just like pond scum. So that is what we were trying in Namibia to really carefully document and study in a level of detail that hadn't been done in this area before. Okay, so let me see if I captured all of that wonderful information that you you gave me. So you go to a place that was near the equator many, many millions of years ago. And if you find glacial sediments overlain by carbonates, overlain by, what did you call it? Siliciclastics. Siliciclastics. So really, silica just meaning things with silica in them, so like Mm -hmm. a lot of quartz. And clastics being other rocks that aren't quartz and aren't carbonate. Um, it's like sand. Pouring down. Yeah. So you can sort of read these layers as sort of pages in the book of Earth's history. And the oldest pages are the ones that are at the bottom. So you see this glacier, then you see this carbonates, then you see your sand. And you've got a snowball earth making the glaciers, and then you have this carbonate made by this huge amount of CO2 that was needed to get Earth out of the snowball state and warm it up to a place where all those glaciers could melt, but a lot of that CO2 became the carbonate rocks. Mm-hmm. And then Earth goes back into its normal sand-making state. Yeah, if you, the continents are exposed, you can break them down again. 
And so your job was to look at the carbonate unit, the carbonate page, and read the fine print that was there in the fossils of microbes in that rock to understand what life was like during that time. Am I yeah. interpreting that right? Yeah, that's a that's a great summary. And you know, of course, there's a complication to it, which is that you know these carbonate rocks are not just carbonate rocks. Sometimes there's siliciclastics in there. Sometimes there's things that look like the deposits of river deltas carrying rock off of a continent that's not supposed to be exposed at that time. And you know, you go far enough up into it, we started seeing some stuff that looks glacial again, and then it goes back into this massive carbonate. And it's a it's kind of a puzzle because. On modern Earth, certainly, it's easy to understand, oh yeah, like, if you're standing next to a riverbed here, you're standing in the middle of, or the bottom of a lake there, or on a boat in the middle of the ocean here, like, it's, it's very intuitive that the way that rock, the way that sediments are being deposited in all those different places is different. But you go back in the geologic record, and some things get preserved, and some things don't get preserved, and you're not a hundred percent sure where you're standing on the surface of ancient earth when you're in these narrow little canyons somewhere in rural Namibia and all you have is these sediments in front of you and you know that okay many many scientists before me have recognized this is a snowball earth event and they've been this is the cap carbonate the carbonate units that cap the glacial like we're done you know with this story but here I am looking at the carbonate and oh my gosh here's a sand bed you know, or, oh my gosh, here's all of this shale, or, you know, hey, like, these glaciers are supposed to be melting and the ocean's supposed to be getting deeper, but I'm starting to see, you know, evidence of the ocean getting shallower here. So figuring out to what extent can we draw conclusions from these rocks about what's going on on an entire planet and to what extent, or do we have, do we have to limit our conclusions to some sort of lake that was also in the middle of nowhere 600 million years ago? So... It's a complicated puzzle and a really delightful one to, uh, to work on for a summer. This uh, reminds me of my hesitation about a lot of conclusions that uh, surround the planet Mars because we try to understand what early Mars was like in terms of its climate and its habitability, but we really only poke around on Mars at very specific places. At any given time, we have many orbiters around Mars, but just a few landers and rovers and to what extent can we say that this particular crater that this rover is exploring is indicative of Mars as a whole um, is always something that I keep in the back of my mind. But we're now talking about this strange new world or this strange old world, which is early <laughs> Earth. And so you're investigating the biosphere here by looking at the fossils in the carbonate unit. What did you find? Yeah, so these rocks are so old and what geologists call recrystallized because um, the idea is you know since those sediments first got buried deep underground they've been subjected to groundwater carrying various ions along with it through the pores in the rock and they've been subjected to different temperature and pressure regimes and all of this stuff so a lot of the the primary textures of that rock have changed since first all these little grains were cemented together and buried so rather than finding fossils in the sense that you might find a, a dinosaur bone or something like that out in Utah. Utah has dinosaur bones, doesn't it? I've never been to Utah, full yeah. disclosure. Um, <laughs> but uh, instead of finding like a bone or instead of finding a footprint or something as concrete as that, instead you're looking for particular structures in the rock 
that can only exist if you have the cohesion of a microbial mat on the ocean floor. So I don't know if on your show before you've referenced stromatolites, but stromatolite, microbial laminite, these are words that geobiologists often use to describe some of the textures that they see in these rocks. And so when I say textures, I don't just mean is it rough or is it smooth, but if you're looking at a rock with a bunch of tiny little layers in it, you know, sometimes those layers are a little bit crinkled, you know, they're a little bit crinkled up, they're not flat lying on top of each other. And depending on the size of those crinkles, how far they propagate vertically and things like that, or the relative thickness of each lamination from the side edges of an individual crinkle to the top of it, like this is how we have to tell the difference between something that's just slightly folded and deformed because it's been buried for so long and something that really was the result of some kind of microbial mat or pond scum having little sediments stick to it or slightly changing the chemistry of the water around where they're growing so that they can cause new minerals to precipitate on top of them. And so it's really hard to describe it all just audibly because the, 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 the whole reason that we go to a place like Namibia is because it's difficult to understand just from reading a textbook or listening to a description exactly what you're looking for. So one of the really exciting things that I liked to see was uh, stromatolite reefs. So stromatolite is this sort of domal structure that forms when you have some sort of aberration or some sort of weird change in the texture of the seafloor that then gets propagated upward in this accretionary structure. You're getting new greens, the new sediments that are falling around it sort of turn a little bump into a bigger bump and into a bigger bump and into a bigger bump. And depending on whether or not this stromatolite is biogenic or abiogenic, whether microbes are involved in its formation structure somehow or not. Each layer may be a little bit thicker on the top than on the sides, or maybe you've got crystals growing all the way around it and making sort of a nice even sphere around this bump on the ground, in which case it would be probably not a biogenic stromatolite. But when you get a true stromatolite reef, so something that was a microbial reef in the Neoproterozoic Ocean, you see not just little stromatolites that have little domes of crystals like growing around them. Um, instead, you see this sort of pinching and bulging and a lot of variation in shape and size, and you see branching off, um, branching off from one little dome or column or, or digit um, to another. And you start to see them getting, it's really neat because it's not a plant that's growing, but it it behaves like a plant in some ways. You can see one of these little digitate stromatolite, as we call them, the more finger-like ones, growing up and growing up, but then all of this other sediment getting piled on around them until it smothers them out. And then you can see a new crop growing up on top of that. And uh, in some cases where they bend over, they're shielding each other from more sediment piling on top. And so you can see this whole story sort of building up and you know, you walk around enough, these structures might be tens of meters across. And from there, I always like to draw a picture and try to imagine, like, what did this actually look like on the seafloor? Because here I am sitting in the middle of a dry desert and have to switch gears in your brain to think, okay, now I'm deep under the ocean. Not super deep, because I still have to have enough sunlight for these little stromatolites to grow by photosynthesis. But I'm on some carbonate platform somewhere, somewhere that feels maybe 
a little bit like the the Caribbean or the Mediterranean, perhaps. And I've got this giant blob of just pond scum and dirt that's been growing over the course of some million years, uninterrupted by anything except the occasional sloshing wave or the occasional storm or something like that, just getting bigger and bigger and stronger. And there's no animals to break it apart or bore through it or anything like that. You just have this really quiet, persistent growth of pond scum just for years and years and years. And you build and build on this story. And, you know, this whole time I haven't found a single dinosaur bone, you know, (laughs) but like, but you learn to get so excited about the crinkles in ancient mud because they paint this much more elaborate picture. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I really like how you painted this picture for us, even without any visuals. Um, you, you described it so well. These microbial mats, this pond scum, it's, it's a microbial world back then, right? There, there wasn't anything like uh, even as small as a mouse running around. They were all microbial beings, but they were able to create these macroscopic structures that could influence the currents in the ocean, which is absolutely amazing. We have nothing quite like that today. We actually do have something quite like that today. It's in Sharks Bay, Australia, and a few other special places on the earth that there are still these, bigger than some people in some cases, microbial structures that you can go see and people go and do work on them. There are still living stromatolites. They're, they're probably totally different microbial communities than the ones that Cecilia was looking at. Probably different species, different organization. Probably just as different as a forest would have been now versus millions of years ago. But microbes are still doing the work, in some cases, of building up these sort of big structures. And although now most of our reefs and lagoons are caused by corals, there are still places like Sharks Bay where you can go and you can see these stromatolites. And some of the people in my lab have actually gone and seen them. And it's supposed to be pretty incredible, if a little bit smelly in certain cases. Yeah. Last summer, the place that I was doing field work was uh, in the Turks and Caicos in the Caribbean. And the thing is, like, there's, there's still animals there. But in order to get these microbial reefs today, just like in Shark Bay, you have to make the water super salty or super hot or like super saturated in something yeah, that something like you know, only those microbes can live in. Yeah, those in, microbes in like a handful of snails yeah. or something like that. You know, you go to those places and you can faintly imagine that you're standing, you know, oh, this is what the early Ediacaran Ocean might have been like with tiny, really hardy, extremophilic animal life clinging to the fringes of this microbial world. Yeah, but part of the reason we probably only see these microbes building up structures in harsh places today is because mm-hmm. if you're a nice place to live, you're going to have plenty of animal tourists and plants up yeah. there trying to just t- occupying that you're real estate. Worms. But yeah, yeah, worms. Worms, the downfall <laughs> worms. of the microbial reef. <laughs> but back before animals were common, you could imagine a world where that prime real estate was colonizable by microbes. Mm-hmm. They could grow slowly over millions of years without some worm coming around and eating them like it would happen today. Now they're relegated to worm-free zones, but <laughs> I'm sure there are some clever worms that have figured it out. But <laughs> Kind of a, uh, another cool aspect of the, the cryogenian and this transition, the atmosphere of Earth uh, wasn't nearly as oxygen-rich in the deep past as it is today, so something about these snowball earth events and the response of the biosphere to snowball earth events and uh, the development of not just cyanobacteria, which are a common component of even modern pond scum, but the development of 
other types of photosynthesizing organisms made a huge difference in that transition. And so those little crinkles in the mud are really intimately connected to the rise of oxygen in the atmosphere. Well, if I ever go to Western Australia then and uh, see these active stromatolites, I will thank them and their ancient cousins for <laughs> allowing me to inhabit this world today. Um, so Cecilia, the Star Trek philosophy is all about expanding your comfort zone and going where no one has gone before, <laughs> encountering new cultures and celebrating differences, appreciating other people for their uniquenesses. So besides the science, being in a completely different country on a completely different continent, what surprised you about Namibia and what do you think it taught you about yourself by going there and living there for two months, three months? Yeah, so the, the United States is kind of a special and interesting country, or we think of it as this special and interesting country because it has such a complicated history with colonialism and slavery and you know different waves of immigrant populations from different parts of the world. But there's other countries that have a comparable narrative, and Namibia is one of these countries. It was really interesting and remarkable to me just how similar they were, like despite not really having any direct relationship to one another. So like I think, I think my sister or my and my mother did the genetic test thing where they like tell you the likeliest places that your ancestors would have come from and. My mother is African-American, and some 85% of her genome can be traced to sub-Saharan Africa and probably to somewhere a little bit north of Namibia. So certainly not, you know, going to my ancestral home by any means, you know. (laughs) But there was something really profound and kind of special about being an African-American person who, you know, because of how people of African descent came to this country, know so little about where they came from and everything to to go to an African nation and learn something about the colonial history of that country and, you know, how that colonial history has affected sort of the modern status quo and everything that was just really profound and important to me. And the president is a black Namibian now, but it hasn't been like that um, until very recently in the political history of the country. So most of the land, especially in the rural areas where we were, is owned by people of white Afrikaner, South African descent, and they employ black Namibians. And, you know, it's pretty disturbing. Just it looks like something out of the Jim Crow South in like the 1950s and 60s in the United States. But it's really complicated and fascinating. And, you know, I'm plopped in here with no context and no background and is very, very Star Trekian in that sense. Especially original series, they were always you know, getting plopped down in the middle of some sort of, you know, incredibly politically, socially, religiously, you know, fraught situation on an alien civilization or culture that they didn't really understand and then, but can't just do nothing about it or something like that. So you're sort of, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, okay, like what is the right way for me to engage and like be a researcher like in this country and everything. And unfortunately, you know, it's not Captain Kirk banging a fist down on the table and being like, this is the way it ought to be, you know, or something like that. It's more like small, like subtle gestures and stuff. Like the fact that we came to this country to do research there, but we collaborated with scientists from the Namibian Geological Survey and the Ministry of Mines worked with the park service there and the rangers who like manage the parks and everything and 
don't just talk to and interact with the people who happen to own the land, but also the people who actually work it and know where things are and you know and generally just in all of your interactions with people trying to be like kind thoughtful understanding unobtrusive in a lot of respects because I'd say for the most part Namibia doesn't feel overwhelmingly more unequal or unjust or something like that than the United States it's just the United States is the kind that we're used to That concludes episode 46 of Strange New Worlds, a chat with Cecilia Sanders about her away mission to Namibia, trying to unravel the secrets of Earth's past. I always love listening to Cecilia's scientific adventures, because the techniques that Cecilia and her colleagues use to detect signs of ancient life on Earth may not be too far off from those that will one day be used by robotic or human explorers to look for signs of fossilized life on Mars. It's evident that to Cecilia, Namibia was not just an incredible research experience, but also a source of great personal reflection about society, culture, and history. This reminds me that although the mission of Starfleet is to explore strange new worlds and seek out new life, the mission of Star Trek is actually one of reflecting on the human condition. And I couldn't help but draw parallels between Cecilia's story from Namibia and Dr. Kayla Yakovino's story about doing fieldwork in North Korea from episode 44. Through doing science, we not only discover more about the natural world, but also each other, our unexpected similarities, our beautiful differences, and our mutual struggles to just persist. Now, we're only one episode away from the fabled episode 47 on Strange New Worlds, and I've got a really special guest lined up. So keep monitoring this channel, because Strange New Worlds is about to go where it's never gone before. Engage!